Good morning again and welcome again to Church of the Cross. And thank you to everybody who contributed to the readings. Chris McKinley, that rocking chair is a pretty nice setup. I was envious watching that. And thanks to Sarah and Rudy for that children's homily. Some of that same material will appear here in uh, the sermon right now. Kids, if you want to grab one of those worksheets, the mustard seed coloring sheet, and work on that, that would be great during this time. Our gospel reading this morning, continuing on in Matthew chapter 13, consists of five different images that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus uses these images, these parables, to tease out different aspects of what the kingdom that he is bringing is like. Looking at these five images, I want to briefly talk about two things this morning. Small beginnings and the value of hospitality, the value of God's hospitality. First, small beginnings. This idea of small or insignificant starts is what is central to Jesus' point in the first two images. The kingdom of heaven, as Sarah explained, this expansive, holistic, all-encompassing thing, the reign of the living God, is begun at this small and seemingly insignificant scale. You might be able to imagine the questions or comments that Jesus and his small band of followers might have received at this point in his ministry. Jesus, you're announcing the reign of God, this long-anticipated reality, this thing we Jews have been waiting for. This overturning of oppressive and unjust, deeply rooted systems. This setting right of our relationships with God, with the nations. Should we expect someone else? Should we expect something else, something more, something grander than this small and seemingly insignificant start? The point of the parables that Jesus is sharing here is that the kingdom, This all-encompassing reality has begun here. The seed of all that is longed for is found in this one man and among the small community following him, such as it is. One of the things I am most looking forward to when we are physically gathering again, able to do so, is seeing how all you children have grown over these past weeks and months. I've seen in pictures or socially distant glimpses, some of it, but you, many of you are much taller, bigger, more mature. These are things that we miss often when we're seeing each other regularly, but in this time apart, the difference is much more noticeable. You're becoming who you are, who God has made you to be. The stuff you are growing into was already there in you, waiting to be revealed, to grow and mature. Just like that tiny acorn that becomes this great big oak tree. In the same way, the kingdom of heaven has taken root through Jesus in this small, often imperceptible or overlooked way. Ways we often ignore. And then one day, like a child full grown, there it is, the kingdom in its glory and wonder. For us non-children, this is a season of constriction, even hiddenness. Life has shrunk. In our homes kept from one another, our days and our lives, they can feel small. 
We can perhaps even feel like we're going backwards, like the plan or the plans we had are unraveling. Jesus' words here are not an affirmation of the modern notion of progress, nor are they a guarantee that our personal goals and plans will come to fruition in the ways we expect. Jesus' words here aren't describing this banal or paralyzing optimism. Rather, the simple images he uses here of yeast that transforms, this tiny seed that grows to be an expansive tree, are a reminder, a message of hope that even when we cannot see, even when we are discouraged, things seem to be unraveling, when we cannot imagine how God's good purpose will come to its conclusion, even in those times, the kingdom of heaven is here, is coming, and inevitably will reach its good conclusion. The natural and inevitable end of the seed well planted is this great tree. The natural end of what Jesus, the master gardener, has begun is the renewal of all things, God's reign on earth. At the seminary where I studied, Regent College in Vancouver, in the chapel they have these five banners representing different moments in biblical history, the story of salvation. For the second banner, the banner that represents Jesus' incarnation, his human life, there is at the bottom this small seed. It looks like a baby in utero. And above that seed, that tiny, seemingly insignificant seed, there's this riotous burst of colors and shapes. <laughs> New creation. Begun with this tiny child, this one man, overlooked, seemingly insignificant, a small beginning. But coming to this sure, expansive, and good conclusion. A few weeks ago, I was challenged by something I read by a man named Peter Gregg, who's the author of a book called God on Mute about prayer. He's a leader in the 24-7 prayer movement. That's a global movement for prayer and a pastor in England. He wrote this. He wrote, it's by celebrating and not negating the small things that God is doing right now that we find faith for the bigger things he's not done yet. If a shivering man spots sparks in the hearth on a cold, dark night, he's unlikely to walk away. He's a fool if he says, oh, these embers are nothing, too tiny to warm me, too fleeting to fight the cold of such a night. Neither will he pour cold water on them. Instead, he'll draw close. He'll kneel, reverently blowing on the embers, carefully adding fuel to build a fire. Greg concludes, so we see these signs, small and seemingly insignificant, and we pray more, Lord. So small beginnings. Take heart. Blow on the embers. Anticipate the full, expansive thing that God is doing. And be encouraged, even in this restricted, constricted season. The second thing I want to talk about is the value of hospitality. Both the image of the tree with birds perched or nested there and the image of this abundant amount of flower speak of hospitality. 
The image of a great tree is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe empires, great kingdoms of the earth. And the birds finding a place to make their home conjures this idea of the nations, the peoples, in all their variety and splendor, finding rest, finding shelter in the kingdom of heaven at home. And 60 pounds of flour makes a lot of bread, doesn't it? Enough for a feast to which many are invited. The hospitality of the kingdom that Jesus describes has both external and internal elements. Bread, the shelter and shade of the tree, these are our physical external blessings, aren't they? Part of the provision we need to be sustained physically. The experience of so many people in our city, our nation, our world is of being deprived of these basic necessities, the basic stuff of life. That is an experience of exile. And the promise of the kingdom that Jesus brings is the overturning of these realities. There's an interior element as well. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus will say his kingdom is not of this world. There's a spiritual and unseen component. I think we can all identify with that sense of not being at home with ourselves. The experience of estrangement or alienation from ourselves in our shame, in our our contradictory and divided wills. I've been reading in preparation for this course I'm taking next week about the Korean concept of Han, this restlessness, rage, and regret estranged from ourselves by sin. Think even of the experience of loneliness, loneliness in being alone and and loneliness of being unknown even in relationship, the loneliness of the married. The promise of God's kingdom is the overturning of these interior realities as well, of, of being fully known, named, and loved by the living God. That is the hospitable promise of the kingdom Jesus brings. At home with ourselves, with one another, with creation, with God. How valuable is such a reality? How valuable is such divine hospitality? This question of value is the focus of Jesus' parables of the treasure in the field and of the pearl. In both cases, an individual sells all that they have. Notice, too, in verse 44, the man discovering the treasure in the field sells all he has and does so in his joy. This is someone who's totally taken with the promise of this new thing. This is not a picture of a diversified portfolio mitigating risk. The value of this treasure vastly outmeasures anything else that might be possessed. It's worth going all in for. Such is the promise of the kingdom. An interesting element of our reading is that while the first two parables, the seed and the leaven, are given to the masses, the crowds around Jesus, these two images highlighting the great value of the kingdom, its inestimable worth, are spoken to the disciples to those closest to Christ, following him. Considering the small beginnings, the ragtag group around this one man on the margins of empire, 
considering their seeming insignificance, you can imagine the need for the point that Jesus is making. His followers looking around, is this all going to be worth it? I'm risking a lot here. Consider the situation of our own lives. As I said, more constricted and smaller than we might like. The experience we have of being pulled in so many different directions. Perhaps you can feel that same question. Jesus, is it going to be all worth it? The fullness of what Jesus brings, the fullness of what he promises, the fullness of his kingdom, he assures us in these parables, is worth it. Is worth everything you have. And yes, that involves sacrifice and at times is so very difficult. The pull to secure ourselves through our own wealth, to, to build our own kingdoms, the pull of entertainment, comfort, and compromise is so very strong. But that is only because we lose sight or we don't have sight of the fullness of what Jesus is promising, the fullness of what he is doing, of what has begun in him. We get glimpses of it, tiny seed-like tastes at the table, droplets of grace by his Holy Spirit, glimpses of it in community, glimpses of it in truth, beauty, and goodness in the world and creation around us. Only glimpses. But when put in relation to the full promise of the kingdom, the expansive fullness of all that Jesus is doing, we can say, yes, the price is worth it. The price can be paid with joy. The kingdom Jesus promises, the hospitality that is found in him, is so wondrous, so valuable, it's worth it all. It demands our all, as the old song goes. Demands, as in it's an automatic, no-brainer of a decision. An exchange made with joy. Such is the hospitality of God for us, for you. Of course, the final parable that Jesus tells has a different feel for us. The parable of this net is a a follow-up to the wheat and tares in our gospel reading last week. That parable earlier in Matthew 13 highlighted the deferred nature of God's kingdom, the mixed nature of the work of God and the work of the enemy, the work of Satan in our world at present. We can all identify with that experience, the mixed nature of the world we inhabit. Our parable reiterates that and emphasizes that a part of the fullness of God's kingdom is the judgment surrounding that, deferred but coming. A part of the completion, the full growth of the kingdom Jesus brings is this appropriate response to the wicked and righteous as part of God's good plan. To the original hearers, oppressed and downtrodden, marginalized, Familiar with the injustices of the wealthy and wicked, this would have been good news. Something to look forward to. The setting right of what was wrong in the world, what was inequitable, the vindication of the just, 
a reward for the small and insignificant way of integrity and life, the promise of justice, good news. But with our contemporary ears, there's perhaps a little discomfort. Where do we stand? We wonder. In our lives today, the need to get it right, to be right, is acute. We fear being in the wrong, being found wanting, and all the shame and estrangement that go along with them. The picture of the fiery furnace, this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, is this terrifying image of radical alienation, of woe. Will we be found wanting, unworthy of God's hospitality? With this question, the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 ring in my ears. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us graciously all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, for you, making a home for us, for you. Such is the measure of God's hospitality. Such is the measure that we, sinful, shameful, broken as we are, would be included. Such is the measure of his love for us that he gave up his son for us all. Such was his desire that any and all should enter into and enjoy the abundance, the overwhelming abundance of his kingdom that we might be regarded as righteous, that we might be made just, transformed like flour worked through by leaven, perched now where we do not belong, nested in his loving embrace. This is something of such exquisite value. It is such a costly treasure, a cost that he bears. In him, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field can be ours, is given for us, given to us. Let us persevere in hope. Let us pay the price, whatever it may be, with joy. Let us lay hold of the fullness of all that Jesus promises. Today, this week, at all times, in all things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.